Welcome to the Stony Plain Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community that is about discovering fullness of life for everyone by practicing the way of Jesus together. This message is a part of our series on the book of Philippians, where we are exploring the significance of this New Testament letter for us today. Morning, everybody. Glad you're with us today. It's been said that church fights are the worst fights. I don't know if that's true because I've seen some pretty bad fights outside of the church. There are families that fight. There are neighborhoods that fight. Uh, There are sports rivalries, soccer rivalries that are so bitter around the world that to go to a match is to take your life in your own hands. There are countries that fight. Uh, There are family feuds that uh, last for generations. People have forgotten what they're actually mad about. Uh, But I do know that when the church fights, it can create a lot of pain and disillusionment for those who are part of the church and even for those outside in our community. As we make our way through Philippians, we get to a passage on making peace with one another. One of the main themes in this letter is the theme of church unity. Paul has been alluding to a growing rift in the church and that the rift has actually been hindering its witness For Christ in Philippi. Why would anyone who doesn't know Jesus want to belong to a church that is full of backbiting and bickering and arguing? Well, well they don't. And so now Paul addresses the elephant in the room. He calls out two women who are at the center of the conflict. He, He doesn't do it to embarrass them. He doesn't do it because he's angry with them. He does it because he loves them and he because he he values these women. And he values the witness of the church in the community. These women had had once worked side by side with each other and with the Apostle Paul. They had once linked arms together. They were tight with each other. They were sharing Christ together and working hard together. But now something has gotten between them. Their egos are bruised. And they're fighting against one another rather than the common enemy that they have. And their fight is ruining the witness of the church in the community. Paul wants them to contend as one person for the sake of the gospel. These two women and the church itself is being called to something greater. So hear what he says in this text. Kiana Olson is going to read Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 to 9 for us. So hear the word of the Lord. Philippians 4, verse 1 to 9. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, Stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended by my side at the cause of the gospel, along with the Selentmen and rest of the co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. The word of the Lord. 
So thanks be to God. There are three large headings that I'm going to share under out of this passage. The first large heading is the context for making peace. The second large heading is the principles for making peace. And the third is the promises for making peace. So first, the context for making peace. Many people become part of the church and, and they're shocked that conflict actually exists in the church. The, the truth is that wherever you have people, you have conflict. Notice in this passage that peacemaking is actually the work of the church. Paul writes, I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they've contended at my side for the cause of the gospel. It's not the job of the pastor to make peace. It's our collective responsibility to actually help make peace. Everyone is impacted by the conflict in the church. And if we don't help, we actually get drawn into the conflict. How many times have we been drawn into conflict? We end up taking sides. Rather than helping to resolve the conflict, we actually make the conflict worse. Author Mark Buchanan writes, one of the differences between horses and donkeys shows up in a fight. When horses confront an enemy, a pack of wolves say, they face each other and kick the enemy. When donkeys confront an enemy, they face the enemy and kick each other. For some reason, he writes, the church tends to play the ass and not the stallion. We have an uncanny ability to turn on each other when the pressure's on. And so here's the job of the church. We're supposed to actually help one another behave more like stallions rather than asses. I know an elder in another church, got to know him when I was a fairly young pastor, and I, I asked him what he loved best about being an elder. And he's a real teddy bear inside, but he looks a little bit gruff on the outside. He's got a beard, and uh, he's a Dutch farmer, and he's, uh, you know, he's just sort of one of these uh, unpolished types on the outside. And to make matters worse, he's got a, he's got a wonky eye, and so when he looks at you, you don't know if he's looking at you or looking through you or looking past you. It's just sort of a, a weird, freaky thing. And um, he said, I love to help make peace between people. And so I said, tell me about that. He said, well, one of the ways that I help support our pastor is I take people aside who I know are fighting and I help them to work it out. I was really intrigued by that. In fact, I was starting to think about how I could recruit him to come to my, the church that I was pastoring at the time. And, and I said, how do, you, how do you do that? And he said, well, it's, it's different depending on every situation. But the last time we had two couples who were fighting and they were part of the same small group and they were fighting and, and they were ruining the small group. And it was starting to ripple out. It was starting to impact the rest of the church. And so me and one other elder invited them to come to the church for a meeting so that we could have a talk about the conflict that they were having and wanted to help them work the conflict out. We invited them to come there. We told them what we wanted to see happen. And when we got there, we all walked into a room together and I locked the door and I looked at them and I thought, yeah, you're looking at them with your wonky eyes so they don't know what you're thinking. I closed the door, I locked it, and I said, we're not leaving here until we get this thing worked out. And he said, four hours later, we walked out of there and they were hugging and they were crying. I'm not really into that emotional huggy kind of stuff. I just wanted them to stop fighting because they were ruining our church. And if we use Mark Buchanan's analogy, he was helping these two couples behave more like stallions rather than asses. Conflict in the church should not be a surprise to us, but we shouldn't allow conflict to fester because the reputation of Jesus is dependent on our ability to make peace with one another. The context for peacemaking 
really is the church. Secondly, principles for making peace. There are a number of them, so get ready. We're going to go fairly quickly. Number one, examine your heart in light of kingdom reality. Earlier, Paul had called them citizens of heaven. And in, the, in this text, he calls them brothers and sisters who he longs for. His joy and his crown, affectionate language. And he says at one time, these two women, Yodia and Syntyche, had contended with him side by side for the sake of the gospel. They had linked arms. They had worked together for the sake of the gospel. And then to really hammer his point home, he says, whose names are in the book of life. Paul is wanting them to examine their hearts and the conflict that they're in in light of ultimate kingdom reality. These sisters in Christ who had been reconciled to God through the death of Jesus, who belonged to God's family, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. He wants them to look at the bigger picture here. It's hard to be in conflict with one another, holding grudges, being bitter, dividing up the church in light of kingdom reality. This is the reality that we now live in. Jesus has rescued us through his death on the cross. He's made peace for us with God. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And our names are not written there because of what we've done. Our names are not written there because we've earned a place there. Our names are not written there because we've been really, really good people. Our names are written there purely because we're forgiven people. Because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. And he's brought us into a family. He's brought those of us who are still sinners and yet he died for us and he brought us into a family. And he called us the children of God. And he's placed his, our, our name in his book of life. And there's going to be a day when Jesus will return. And there'll be a big family reunion. And he'll restore all things. Therefore, since all of this is true, stop sniping at one another as we journey together toward this final day when Jesus returns. And we're all reunited and he restores all things. We're going to be spending eternity together. We need to learn to get along now. Or else I think eternity is going to be really, really annoying. In light of kingdom reality, most of our arguments seem pretty petty. I didn't get enough credit for teaching Sunday school. Seems petty in light of kingdom reality. I didn't get asked to play or sing solos on the worship team. Seems rather foolish in light of kingdom reality. I didn't get consulted when the decision was made, seems small in light of the bigger picture. I can't believe they canceled this program, changed the auditorium colors, implemented a significant change, seems rather weak in light of the gospel story, to be squabbling about small things in light of the amazing grace of God means that we have lost sight of kingdom reality. We should all be filled with a wide-eyed wonder that we have a place in the family of God and that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And so Paul, I think, is saying here, examine what's happening in the church in light of the gospel. James writes, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? What is it that causes our quarrels? What is it that causes a bruised ego? It's oftentimes because of our own evil desires, our own sinful desires. 
It's oftentimes because we want to be at the center, center of the story. It's oftentimes because our, our ego is bruised or we become easily offended. That, that's why we're oftentimes fighting. And so examine yourself in light of kingdom reality. Secondly, deal with conflict quickly so that it doesn't steal your joy. Paul says in the text, rejoice in the Lord always. Nothing robs us of joy more than unresolved conflict. The sooner that we can resolve the conflict, the sooner we can return to rejoicing. There, there can't be joy when there's conflict. Someone had a difficult conversation to resolve and they, they went into the conversation, resolved the issue, and said that this weight had just lifted off of their chest. The problem didn't get fixed, but the relational conflict was resolved and it made all the difference in their ability to return to joy. Number three, be gentle with all. He, he writes, let your gentleness be made evident to all. Jesus is incredibly gentle and gracious with us, but we're not always that way with each other. The, the most difficult person to lead in a conflict is always yourself. We either want to fight or we want to flee when we're threatened, when we're offended, because we need to manage emotions we become the most difficult person in a fight. We either want to flee or we want to fight. We either want to blow up or we want to implode. Neither of those responses are gentle responses. One is red hot, the other is stone cold. And here's the thing. We might think we're being gentle, but the emphasis in this text is that our gentleness would be evident to other people. We need others to feel. We need others to experience the incredible gentleness of Jesus through our lives. And Paul is not saying that we should never, ever enter into a conflict conversation. In fact, quite the opposite. He's saying when you do enter into a conflict conversation, make sure that your gentleness is evident to all. Be incredibly gentle with others so that they know that you're gentle which means probably for us that we need to get our emotions under control before we engage in a peacemaking conversation so that others can see and experience the gentleness of Jesus in us. So how do we do that? I think that leads us to number four. Bring your concerns to God. He writes then next, the Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Jesus is near. He's available to help. So, so don't spin, don't, don't worry on this issue, but rather pray with thanksgiving and let God know about your problems. Rather than trying to fix the problem on your own, rather than trying to fix the person, begin to pray. And begin to pray with thanksgiving. I, I would venture to guess that the majority of us, when we're offended or we get into a conflict situation, we tend to vent to other people about it. We tend to run around to our friends, to people in our church, and we may even do it under the guise of, I, I have something I need you to pray about. And we share the conflict conversation with other people. And in the, in the course of that, we end up venting to them. Now, I understand we all need mentors. We all need friends who will come alongside of us and help guide us in the right direction. Oftentimes when we share with other people, we are often venting and wanting them to take our side. Paul is suggesting here, rather than going to other people, that we actually bring it to God in prayer. Eugene Peterson has noted that the psalmist vents in anger 
about his enemies to God in prayer so that he doesn't vent in anger on other people. He allows his anger to spill out on God rather than spill out on other people. And so most of us, I think, spend more time venting to others and not enough time venting in prayer to God. Pray about it. Number five, discern what's good. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is pure, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. You ever notice that in a conflict, it's, it's hard to see the good? We become fixated on the problem rather than maintaining our ability to see the whole picture. You know, I'm sure there was a day where these two women loved to be together. They loved working together. They, they had linked arms together in, for the sake of the gospel. They were probably inseparable, and now something has come between them, and they can only see the problem. In a failing marriage, spouses who want to get a divorce will typically build a case in their minds about the other person and will oftentimes vilify that person and will refuse to see the good in that other person or the good that has transpired as a result of their relationship. They're usually so badly hurt that the only thing that they can do is fixate on the bad. Paul is calling us to learn to discern and focus on the good. Practice in your mind the ability to recall the good and focus on that rather than on their shortcomings, rather than on the failure. Focus on the good that people have produced rather than on how they failed. Don't think of them as a loser. Think of them as someone who has actually just made a mistake. We would often say to our kids, you know, you're not, you're not bad. You have just done something bad. Well, one day I kind of lost my cool and I said to one of my kids, would you stop being such a troublemaker? And they looked at me and they said, Dad, I'm not a troublemaker. I'm just making trouble. I'm like, yeah, touche, you're right. Uh, learn to discern and then focus on the good. It will not help you to vilify your brother or sister in Christ. And then number six, practice what you've seen model well. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. You know, all of us have a, this instinctive style. We either flee or fight. Neither is good. It never helps but, but in, rea in, in reality, we all have an, sort of an instinctive behavior. But the reality is, is that we can actually learn to make peace. This is what Paul is saying here. I want you to, you know, copy what you've seen in me. Emulate what you've seen in me. Don't go with your instinctive reaction. Go with what you've learned from others. If you've seen others do this well, learn from them. And begin to change your pattern. Begin to change your style so that you enter into a conversation. When you enter into a conversation, it can actually help to bring peace. Put these peacemaking skills into action. Don't flee from conflict. Don't go on the assault in conflict. But put good peacemaking skills into practice. Every peacemaking situation requires a crucial conversation that will hopefully lead to some form of resolve and restoration. And I say hopefully because it does take two to really make peace. Uh, I'm going to share three principles with you that I've been learning, and Matt and I are going to unpack these in greater detail on the Apprenticeship Toolbox podcast, episode number seven. We would love it if you would join in this week. The link is on the screen 
just below. If you go there, uh, if you go to Spotify, iTunes, Anchor FM, you'll find our, our podcast there. This year, I worked on some conflict management stuff, and our staff have also worked through the dynamics and the mechanics of these difficult conversations. Uh, so I'm just going to give you these three basic principles, and we'll pack them more this week. First of all, be quick to listen. James writes, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. The hardest part about a conversation that we have over conflict or in conflict is to actually start the conversation without blowing it up. The best way to enter into a conflict conversation or a peacemaking conversation is with a listening posture. Stay curious. Ask lots of questions. Everyone should be quick to listen. Don't go in with both guns blazing. Don't go in making accusations. Go in asking questions. Be quick to listen. Slow to speak and slow to become angry. Stay curious. Number two, speak the truth in love. Paul writes, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head that is Christ. Conflict is not an opportunity to impose our will on someone else. It's not an opportunity to prove someone wrong. It's not an opportunity to put someone in their place. It's not an opportunity to prove that we're right. Conflict is an opportunity, peacemaking is an opportunity to express and demonstrate the power of God's love in our lives. In that regard, our speech has to be full of both grace and truth, to speak the truth in love. And then thirdly, work toward a mutual solution. Romans chapter 14, verse 19, So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. And 2 Corinthians 13, 11, Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live at peace we can work toward a mutual solution that will honor Jesus and be mutually edifying. And so we've looked at the context for making peace. It's the work of the church. We've looked at the principles for making peace. And then thirdly, the promises for making peace. If we work toward relationship, relational peace, there are some promises in this text. I did the welcome at the church building because without making peace with one another. That new building will at best be a facade for the gospel. And at worst, it will be an empty shell. But if we can make peace, if we can learn to make peace with each other whenever conflict arises, rather than, rather than walking away, rather than blowing up, rather than giving each other the cold shoulder, if we can make peace, there are some incredible promises in this passage our church can become an incredible place where the people of God can become a source of peace to one another and to the world. The first is the gift of God's palpable peace. There's a promise in this text that says, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. If we would dare to make peace with those with whom we're in conflict with, God promises that his peace, which transcends human understanding, it's not humanly possible to be at peace in this way. This kind of peace will become ours, both personally and also relationally, corporately. And then secondly, the gift of God's palpable presence and the God of peace will be with you in verse 9. That's the second promise in this passage. We will know the presence of the God of peace. If you've ever tried to experience the presence of God in the midst of conflict, 
with your spouse, with your friends, or within a church, you will know it is virtually impossible. Remember, he's saying to the church, the body of Christ, the God of peace will be with you. You will know, you will sense, you will experience the presence of God in your midst. Relational strife does the opposite for us. We will never experience the presence of God in our midst. But he's saying, if you, if you, will, if you will take this task of peacemaking seriously, if you will put yourself to the hard task of making peace when there's relational strife, that you would know the presence of God even more. When you learn to make peace with those who wound you, you, you will begin to experience the presence of God. Could you imagine a church? Could you imagine a group of people who have learned to make peace? Not learned to agree on every issue, but learned to make peace with one another. To have the conversations that they would normally fight over or walk away from, but actually bringing peace into their midst as a result of knowing the peace of God in their lives. The church, the reason that we can make peace with one another is because God has first and foremost made peace with us. God has walked into our world. He's taken on flesh and he's made peace with us on the cross. We're exhibiting growth in Christ's likeness when we choose to make peace with each other because peace has first been established for us on the cross. It is the nature of God to make peace. He's a peacemaker. Making peace means that the gospel has actually begun to make a dent in our lives. It means that we're actually beginning to be shaped by Jesus, the ultimate peacemaker. It means that we're starting to face our fears and swallowing our pride and not putting ourselves at the center of the story, but rather humbling ourselves for the sake of one another and ultimately for the sake of Jesus. Knowing the presence of God and knowing the peace of God are the gifts of peacemaking. Listen to this psalmist from Psalm 133. This is from the message. How wonderful, how beautiful when brothers and sisters get along. It's like costly anointing oil flowing down head and beard, flowing down Aaron's beard, flowing down the collar of his priestly robes. It's like the dew of Mount Hermon flowing down the slopes of Zion. Yes, that's where God commands the blessing and ordains eternal life. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you. Thank you for making peace with us through the cross. Your word says that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. He made peace for us. Even when we were shaking our fist at you and walking away from you, when we were railing against you, you made peace for us through the cross. You're a peacemaker. Help us then to display peacemaking in our own lives toward one another. Help our church become an incredible place of peace where people can palpably sense the peace of God and the presence of God in our midst when we meet together when we meet in large groups, when we meet in small groups, when we meet together as families, may your peace and your presence be so palpable that others are impacted because of our 
desire our willingness to make peace. Grant us this grace in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning into our podcast today. To discover more about Stony Plain Alliance Church and its ministries, visit our website at spaconline.com. Grace and peace.